Good morning, Sunwest. And special welcome to those online. It's good to be with you all this morning, whether on site or online. And we're going to jump right in uh, to our series that we're in. We're in week three. And so if you missed uh, any of the first couple of weeks, you can always go back online and, uh, and watch those. Uh, you can get links directly from our web- website, sunwestchurch.com. Uh, we're doing a series called Reunion, uh, which is the good news of Jesus for seekers, saints, and sinners. And which one are you, seeker, saint, or sinner? Yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> someone respond with yes. Uh, and so uh, you know, I believe this is serious for all people, whether you've been following Jesus or going to church for a really, really long time, or whether this is your first, first time at church, uh, whether you don't know anything about Jesus and you're trying to figure out what it's all about. Uh, we're all in this together, and so I'm excited as we kind of work our way through what does the gospel mean? And the gospel is just a word that simply means good news. What is the good news about Jesus? And so last week, we summarized the good news in one word, and that one word was Jesus. Uh, Did someone say squirrel? Uh, So uh, the the good news is, in one word, is Jesus, that Jesus actually fully uh, embodies uh, God and that he represents the good news in and of himself. He wasn't just the means to the good news, but the the message, the means is the message, that he himself embodied, incarnated, uh, is the kind of the theological word that we use, but he took on flesh and he revealed God uh, to us. And so we look to Jesus, much like we look to the puzzle on the outside of a puzzle box to help us make sense of uh, everything in the Bible and history and what God is doing, and Jesus kind of helps us put those puzzle pieces together. So the good news in one word is Jesus, and today we're going to look at the good news in three words, uh, and, and then eventually we're going to look at the, the good news in 30 words. So all of these are talking about the same message. There's just uh, depth to the message, right? And so we're going to go from simplicity to complexity, and so last week we talked about it in, in the simplest way we can with one word. Today we're going to get a little bit more complex and we're going to talk about the good news in three words. And then next week we'll start to look at the good news in 30 words. Uh, the gospel in three words is actually the earliest Christian creed. Now you might think, what is creed? Uh, when, you, when you hear that word, you might be wondering what that is. Or, or perhaps you might jump to all of our favorite 90s rock band, uh, Creed. Can you take me higher? Do, 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 do. A little Mark Tremonti riff there. Uh, So, uh, you know, Scott Stapp, lead singer of Creed. I was a little bit of a Creed nerd, just to be honest. Back in the day, um, that's Scott Stapp right in the middle, who's the lead singer. I was contemplating wearing that shirt to preach this morning, and then I decided decided against it. but uh, I loved Creed when I was in high school, and uh, it's hard to admit that now, but I, I was actually in a band in my, uh, going in junior high and going into high school when Creed was at its, like, you know, it was really famous, and, and we had made an album, and we sent that album into HM Magazine, which stands for Heaven's Metal. Anybody ever remember reading HM Magazine? Okay. Not very many of you. Okay, it stands for Heaven's Metal, for all you Christian metal fans out there. And uh, so my band sent in uh, our album, and we got reviewed in the magazine. And they said, uh, this band just sounds like a Pearl Jam and Creed wannabe. (laughs) And they were absolutely correct. That is exactly what I wanted to be. So thankfully, we've all moved on and matured since those 90s. Um, anyways, that's not what I'm talking about when I talk about Creed. Uh, I digress. Uh, creed 
is a statement that solidifies the beliefs of a faith community. So if you're a student of church history, you might be familiar with the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. These creeds uh, were written as a way of, of orienting, of, of, uh, of laying down the foundations of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. And often these creeds were written at a time when the culture was changing, there was new ideas around, and the church wanted to anchor itself and make sure that we, uh, we are anchored on the same truth system and the belief system. And so there was different creeds that were written throughout church history uh, that just kind of anchored them, solidified uh, their belief. Uh, you might be familiar with the Apostles' Creed. Like I mentioned, and maybe you've heard it. It says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, And born of the Virgin Mary, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. So that was the Apostles' Creed. And so very early on the church wrote this just as a way of anchoring them. And there was different creeds uh, that were kind of written uh, that expanded on that uh, as history went on. Um, if you were to look at Islam, Islam has a creed uh, called the Shahada. And it is very simple. And it says there's no God but Allah and Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. So as simple as you can get, uh, which should pause us, which cause us to pause and say, is there a very, very simple creed that would in the same way expand or it would um, summarize what the gospel, what the good news is all about, what Christianity is all about. Uh, and there is. In fact, the, the, er, the very earliest creed in Christianity was a three-word creed, three words long. Are you ready for it? Yep. Here are the three words. The earliest creed, the gospel in three words is, say it with me, Jesus is Lord. That's it. Jesus is Lord, the earliest creed of the church. This is the good news. This is the gospel in three words. Obviously, the gospel is more than this, uh, as we'll see as we go through the series, but uh, it's certainly not less than this. The good news in one word is Jesus. The good news in three words is Jesus is Lord. And we can see this, this creed, uh, this statement, uh, when Paul, in his letter to the Romans, writes in chapter 10, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so this verse kind of acts as a bit of an anchoring point for us this morning. Uh, Paul is saying, this is the simplest Christian confession, that Jesus is Lord. Declare it with your mouth. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. And so I want to look at these three words and why, uh, in, in some ways, it's so simple uh, but yet it's very profound, and, and the well goes very deep. And so the first word, Jesus, which we spent a lot, lot of time talking about last week, uh, but let's just expand a little bit more on it. Uh, n- names have meanings, and we don't give as much thought usually behind the meanings anymore when we name our kids. But back in the day, uh, in biblical times, there was a lot of thought that went on to the meaning of names. Uh, in fact, the, 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 the name that somebody was given often indicated uh, the blessing or the calling that God ha- had in their life. Uh, my name, Matthew, I don't know if anybody knows what it means, but it means God's gift. And when I was in uh, junior high and early high school, I actually used this as a pickup line. I would go to girls and say, did you know that my name means I'm God's gift to you? Uh, and, and they would respond by saying, just because that's your name doesn't mean that it's true. And... Uh, I quickly learned. Uh, so it's possible to have a name, uh, and the meaning of your name may not be true. But uh, Jesus, 
had a name, Jesus, and his name had a meaning, and that meaning was absolutely true. He was given that name purposefully. In Matthew one twenty one, it says, you, uh, the angel came to Mary and Joseph and said, you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save people from their sins. Now, this is important to actually point out in the Christmas story when Mary and Joseph named Jesus, they didn't name Jesus. And why is that important? Well, because fathers in that time would name their children. Fathers would name their children, and and them naming their children was actually a mark of authority and identity. It, It spoke to the child on who their authority was, and it spoke identity into the child. Uh, And and often the meaning was tied up in that identity. And so when it came to time for Jesus to come in the flesh, uh, when Jesus came in the flesh, uh, the angels wanted to be clear, God wanted to be clear that Jesus was not subject to any human authority. Nobody could name him except God. His authority came from God. Nobody could speak into his identity except God the Father. His identity came directly from God the Father. And the name Jesus uh, literally means God is salvation. The name in Hebrew is actually Yeshua, which is uh, in English Joshua. So many of us don't realize that, but Jesus' actual name, yes, was Joshua. And if you are, if you know your, your Bible and your, your biblical history, Joshua was a, a person who was appointed in the Old Testament to help establish God's kingdom when they moved into the land of Canaan by leading his people into war with their enemies. And according to the angel in Matthew 1.21, Jesus would be like a Joshua 2.0. He would save his people. He would help establish a new kind of ki- kingdom. He would lead people into this kingdom, into this promised land, but it wouldn't be a geographical land. It would be, uh, it would be a realm. It would be a new level of existence, a new level of authority. And, and God would save his people from an enemy, except this enemy was not flesh and blood. This enemy was the enemy of sin inside of us all and the enemy of the devil who was against us all. And so Jesus actually came as a Joshua 2.0 to save his people, to bring them into the promise that he had for them to uh, restore them into right relationship with God and to save them from the evil one and the sin uh, that threatens us and, and is bearing in on us all. So Jesus is God's name for Jesus. Yeshua, Joshua, 2.0, the one who is going to come and save. Now, that's the, the first word, Jesus. Let's look at the second word, is. And we don't often give uh, is a lot of thought in the human language. We just kind of throw it in. In the original Greek text that Paul wrote in, there was no is. It's just kind of assumed in the verb. Uh, so the, the original Christian creed was actually two words, but in English it's three words. Uh, anyways, that doesn't really matter. So is. The apostle uses this concept in, uh, very intentionally. Uh, this was more than 20 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, if Paul would have said Jesus was Lord, he would have been say- saying something that was absolutely true but it would have been incomplete. If Paul said Jesus will be Lord, he would have also been saying something true, but also incomplete. The is that Paul uses changes uh, everything. It changes how we think about the gospel because Jesus is Lord. It means that we can experience him right now and his kingdom right now. Notice how Paul ties together the truth of Jesus being Lord with the reality of the resurrection. If you remember back to Romans 10 verse 9, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that, Jesus, uh, that God raised him from the dead. 
So he's saying, declare with your mouth Jesus Lord, and then the foundation of that, believe in your heart that, that God raised him from the dead, uh, we see that the resurrection is an important and non-negotiable part of the Christian faith. History is full of examples of people that gave their lives in service to others, and only one person gave his life and came back to tell about it. The resurrection is evidence that what happened at the crucifixion is really God at work and not just one more terrible tragedy in history. The tragedy did not have the last word. It's God's great exclamation point on the story of Easter. Without the resurrection, there really is no good news. The resurrection of Jesus is why we can say that Jesus is Lord. And have you ever read a biography about a person long dead and wished that you could sit down with that person and, and find out more about them and, and, and figure out their life and what they were all about? Well, we can do that with Jesus because we have uh, the biographies of the Gospels, the four books that we mentioned last week and also the letters that were written after him. We can find out a lot about who Jesus is, not just who Jesus was, but who Jesus is. And so we're learning about a person when you read the Bible, not just somebody that lived 2,000 years ago, but we are learning about somebody who is alive today, who is active today who is loving us even today. And the resurrection is often challenged. Uh, people think the resurrection was made up. Uh, and they rightfully should challenge it because if the resurrection did in fact happen, it changes everything. And most people don't want to change anything. But if the resurrection did happen, it does change everything. Now, I just want to speak just briefly just to a few... Um, a few things that support historically the resurrection. First, we have biographies, uh, and I mentioned these are the four Gospels that were written. They were all written by eyewitnesses or based on eyewitness accounts of those who witnessed Jesus after his resurrection. They were written and circulated while eyewitnesses were still alive. These biographies say, uh, all say the same thing, that Jesus was crucified, that he died, and that he was resurrected. These biographies are supplemented by other letters written in the New Testament that were also written by eyewitnesses that were still alive. And these ancient letters claim that Jesus died by crucifixion, and three days later, he was resurrected. So they all testify to the same thing. Uh, we also know that pagan and Jewish writers report that, that Christians from the very beginning, believed that Jesus was resurrected. It wasn't a belief system that kind of developed over time. Uh, even people that didn't claim to be Christians testified in historical documents that this was critical to the belief system of Jesus' followers, that they believed that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Many of the eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus died because of their claim that Jesus was resurrected. Now, this is incredibly important to think about because their lives likely would have been spared if they would have recanted, if they would have uh, denied Jesus, denied this belief. But these men and women died not for a person, but for a set of facts. They were willing to stake their lives on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. You know, many of us are willing to die to save somebody's life or to help keep somebody alive, your loved ones, but how many of us would be willing to die based on a fact or a belief? The early Christians believed in the resurrection so completely that they gave by the hundreds their lives for this good news. They died because they were unwilling to, to deny what they saw and what they experienced, which was the resurrected Jesus. And this leads us to another fascinating fact 
But did you know that the er early Christians, the followers of Jesus, uh, when he was on earth, did not expect him to be resurrected before the final resurrection? I mean, it's pretty clear when you read the Gospels that the disciples had absolutely no stinking idea what Jesus was up to. Jesus tried to tell them over and over again, and they were like, huh, I don't... What do you mean you have to die? And then you have to come back three days later. It didn't make any sense to them. They, they believed, like good Jewish boys, that there was going to be a resurrection at the culmination of history. That was their thought. And so when Jesus died, they wouldn't have given two thoughts to it. They, they would have believed that Jesus would be resurrected along with everybody else at the end of history. But something happened that changed their entire paradigm, belief system, faith system, as Jewish kids that God had done something remarkable in their time because Jesus was resurrected here and now. There are 11 recorded times that, scripture, that Jesus appeared to uh, people in Scripture after he was resurrected. These appearances were to men and women, individuals, couples, groups, and at least to one large crowd. The appearances were inside, outside, in different locations at different times of day. He was physically touched. He was audibly heard. He was visually seen. He was seen eating food in the presence of witnesses. He was there in the physical body. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Some have died. So Paul is even here saying, there's 500 witnesses that can all testify that they saw Jesus, and some of them are living, and if you don't believe me, just go ask one of them. And so this belief in the resurrected Christ led to an explosion of growth in the early Christian movement uh, at the very place, at the very geographical place that Jesus was died and was buried. This explosion of growth happened mere weeks after the resurrection of Jesus. And it happened in the face of hostility. It happened in the face of uh, opposition, in the face of persecution from civil and religious leaders. And so Paul and the rest of the early Christians thoroughly and deeply believed in the resurrection of Jesus. And if you didn't believe them, you could go find somebody and ask them who actually witnessed the resurrected Christ as well. Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and are still in your sins then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. See, Paul was so convinced of the resurrection of Jesus, he said, if you don't believe in that and you call yourself a Christian, then what are you doing? That is the foundation of our hope. And if that isn't true, then we should be pitied. And this is the view of every writer in the New Testament that the resurrection of Jesus was a reality, and because of that, there's good news, that there's a gospel, that Jesus is Lord. Not just was Lord, not just will be Lord, but Jesus is Lord. And we can proclaim with Paul and the church throughout history that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord changes absolutely everything. This is why 2,000 years ago and still today, followers of Jesus have such a resolute faith 
a hope, an optimism. Despite what happens to them, despite what happens to you, what happens to me, or what is happening in our world, Christians have always been marked by hope and faith because of this belief that Jesus is Lord. They're not overcome by what's happening in their lives in the world because they know that that is not the whole story, that there's a reality that that Jesus is active, is reigning, is on the throne, is Lord. Now let's talk about Lord, this third word. Now I wonder uh, if we would have written what Paul was saying in, in Romans 10 ourselves, if we would have said, uh, declare with your mouth that Jesus is Savior. Now just, just think, if you've been around church for any amount of time, we often talk about Jesus being Savior. Jesus being our forgiver, Jesus being our friend. But we'll see, according to Paul, that us being saved is a byproduct of Jesus being Lord. Does that make sense? Us being saved is a byproduct of Jesus being Lord. Uh, and so instead of actually talking about Jesus, forgiver, Savior, friend, all these other words that Paul could have used, and he could have used many of them, Paul summarizes the gospel with Jesus as Lord because all of these things are underneath the lordship of Jesus. All these things are true because Jesus is Lord. All these things are true because Jesus was resurrected. If Jesus wasn't resurrected, then none of it matters. But because Jesus was resurrected, because Jesus is Lord, we can be saved, that we can be forgiven, that we can have a friend in God. These are all true because of the resurrection. So when we think of the word Lord, there's actually three words. It's the Greek word kyrios. Uh, and there's three ways that this word can be translated. The first one is sir. Uh, and this happens a couple times in Scripture. There's a woman at the well in John 4, and she comes up to Jesus and says, Sir, uh, can you help me? Uh, and so she uses the word sir. There's a, there's a disabled guy beside a pool in John 5, and he uses the word sir. It's just a sign of respect. You know, it's what my children call me when I come home. They say, Sir, <laughs> Father who I respect. But the majority of time, Lord is used, it's not in reference to sir, it's in reference to the two other ways. First one being God, that Lord was synonymous with God himself. We talked extensively about this last week uh, when we covered the gospel in one word. Uh, but as a, re as a quick recap, I want to look at maybe a passage we didn't touch on last week. In, in John 1.18, it says, No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. It's a term of intimacy. Uh, he has explained him. Jesus has explained him. Uh, the Greek word that John is using here in his gospel is the word exegeo, which is where we get the word exegete from. And exegete is something that we use when we talk about a passage of Scripture, which means that we're fully explaining its meaning. So right now I am exegeting John 1.18. Uh, what John is saying in John 1.18 is, is that Jesus exegetes God for us. Jesus helps us understand God. Jesus, and right before that, we learned that, that Jesus was God, as he says earlier in John 1. Uh, we referenced Colossians 1.15 last week, Hebrews 1 verse 3. Um, you can go back and listen to that sermon, but we talked about this extensively last week, that Jesus is God with flesh on. Uh, in John, in the Gospel of John also, Jesus gives seven I am statements, and I am was the name that Yahweh, the name of uh, God in the Old Testament, gave his people when Moses asked, God, who should I tell them that, who, who should I tell them that is sending me? And M Moses was told, tell them I am sent you. 
And so I am was the name that God gave to his people. And then very uh, strategically, John, throughout his gospel, has seven statements that begin with Jesus saying, I am, uh, putting himself at the same level as God. Jesus is God. Jesus is part of the Trinity, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Uh, I used to, uh, back in the day when I lived in Cranston, before we had moved to Chaparral, where we now live, uh, I made some friends with some Jehovah Witnesses. They came to my door and they would knock, and I would go, oh, awesome. Um, There's not very many people that get excited uh, when... They come knocking on your door, but I'm one of those people. And Lisa would look and say, Matt, it's for you. Uh, So I would answer the door, and we would have great conversations. uh, And Jehovah Witnesses don't believe that uh, Jesus is God. Uh, And and so we would have conversations, and the next time they come back, and they would bring another person, like an older person. And then... And then we'd talk, and then they'd bring it, like, in a, I, I was getting, like, the senior citizens by the end of our conversations. Uh, uh, you could see, like, the, the, the missionary mentoring going on. And, uh, and so we would have, like, deep dialogue. And I remember uh, at one point, we got to this, this place where we said, you believe that uh, there's only one God, right? And they said, yes, we, we believe that. Uh, and that God calls us to worship him, yes. And you believe that Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, that John the Baptist said, yes, we believe that. And you believe that the Lamb of God... Uh, that we see in Revelation is Jesus, right? Yes. And that Revelation is the conclusion of the biblical story and of all human history. Yes, yes. And the people, the humans, at the end of the biblical story are all bowing down and worshiping the Lamb, right? Yes. Yes. And that was the last time they came to my door. They never, they never came back after that, uh, which I was disappointed about. Um... But the whole biblical story, um, even though the disciples didn't originally recognize Jesus as such, they learned as time went on who Jesus was. They learned as time went on who this Messiah was, that he wasn't just a prophet, he wasn't just a teacher, that he was actually God that came with flesh on. And as they reflected on his resurrection, as they reflected on his life and his teachings, they realized that this person that they had been walking among them was actually God himself with flesh on. C.S. Lewis talks about a trilemma. Uh, And it's not uncommon to hear people say, you know, I like Jesus. I think Jesus is really smart. I think Jesus is wise. Jesus might be a prophet. Jesus might be a great teacher. But but C.S. Lewis accurately recognized that if you actually read the New Testament for what it is, if you read the Gospels for what they are, Jesus cannot just be a good moral teacher. He doesn't leave you that option. Listen to how Lewis talks about this. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing that we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. 
So C.S. Lewis is recognizing that the types of things that Jesus said about the future, about the current reality that that they were in, about himself, would not actually bring us to a place of saying, hey, that guy's really wise and reasonable. It's like, no, he's he's crazy. He thinks he's God, um, and he's upending the entire religious system, and so you only have a few options available to you. He's crazy, uh, he's a liar, this is lunatic liar, or he is Lord. He is what he says he is. So he goes on, uh, now it seems, uh, seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however, strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have, accept, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. So this is the view of every New Testament writer. There is no variance in this. That the, the writers, the eyewitnesses, the people that were with Jesus testified that Jesus was Lord, that Jesus was God, that the resurrection did happen. If the resurrection didn't happen, there is no gospel, there is no good news. In fact, Jesus' own brother thought that Jesus was Lord and was resurrected. And if you can convince your brother that you're a God, there must be something to it. I tried my whole life, and my brothers did not go for it. So somehow, Jesus' own siblings came to the belief that he was God. Okay, the third one, Jesus as master. To call Jesus our Lord is a way of saying that we follow him, that he leads us. You know, that's why I often tend to call myself a Christ follower instead of calling myself a Christian because Christian means a whole lot of things to a whole lot of different people. Uh, Christian, actually, originally, in its, when it was penned, just means little Christ, someone that lives and acts like Christ. Uh, so Jesus called his followers disciples, which means that they were students, they were learners, they were apprentices. We sometimes think that Jesus only had 12 disciples, but he, he had 12 close disciples, but he had many disciples. Many, many people that were following him, trying to live like him, live according to his teachings. And all of his followers were, even to this day, and are uh, disciples of Jesus. And to be a disciple of Jesus means that he is your master, that you are trying to emulate him, that when you don't know something, you actually go to him. When you're not sure how to live, you try and live like him. When you're not sure what to think, you actually pick his brain and say, I wonder what my master thinks. These are all ideas inherent within the idea of discipleship. And and a part of the master king or master lord um, connotations is this idea of king. Jesus isn't just a master, but he is king. When we embrace the way of Jesus, we are choosing to be a part of his kingdom. We are choosing to proclaim that he is king, that he is lord over a people, over a new community. He is inviting us to live in a new realm in a new way. Jesus called this the good news of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus spoke this way often. It was his way of saying that he was calling a people into a whole new way of living, a whole realm of life. So a kingdom is a way of living. It has somebody in authority. It has somebody in charge. It has, it, there's a dimension of life that is about the relationship and how we relate to each other and how we relate to our king. Uh, and so this is all inherent in this idea that Jesus is Lord. I alluded to it earlier, but if we were going to rewrite what Paul said in Romans 10, chapter 9, we often would re- replace it with Jesus is my forgiver, Jesus is my friend, Jesus is my savior, maybe Jesus is my spiritual director. 
Uh, but as C.S. Lewis says, we have to take Jesus seriously. And if he was who he said he is, he's king and he's Lord. The lordship of Jesus has fallen out of fashion in our culture, in our time. And not just in our culture outside of the church, our culture within the church. When you live in a kingdom, what you experience is the reflection of a king. So depending on the type of king you have in your kingdom, that would, that would determine the type of experience you have in that kingdom. And so because Jesus is king, and as we'll talk about later in the series, God is love and Jesus is God, there are certain attributes and experiences that we have in God's kingdom. We experience forgiveness because Jesus is king. We experience being loved because Jesus is king. We experience being saved. We experience being healed. We experience these things because Jesus is king. But make no mistake, even though we experience all those things, Jesus is, what am I going to say? King. He's Lord. Yeah. In Matthew 28, it says, Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, to the, even to the end of the age. So Jesus said, I've been given all authority. My Father, God, actually gave everything to me on heaven and on earth. I'm in charge. I'm king. Therefore, he gives some commandments, and among those are teach my, these disciples to obey all the commandments I have given you. And often we just kind of skim over this. Jesus didn't say, teach these new disciples my commandments. He didn't say that. He said, teach these new disciples to obey the commandments that I've given you. Now, I don't have a time to unpack this, but because of the Reformation and things that happened in the 16th century, uh, there were some much-needed corrections that needed to happen in the church because there was a whole bunch of abuses happening. And, and so there was a pendulum swing that actually uh, went, went from a religion of works trying to work our way to God to a religion of grace in which we're not saved by works but through grace, as it talks about in Ephesians, which is absolutely true. Uh, but unknowingly, in this switch from going over here to going over here, we kind of threw out this idea that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is King, that there is a, there's a response in the way that we behave and that we live. And, and we would say, well, you can't behave your way into right relationship with God, which is absolutely true, but Jesus would say, uh, you actually don't love me unless you obey me. And we forget these things. We, we think, well, I love God, God loves me, and he's got grace for me, which is true. But we're challenged over and over again in Scripture that if we truly love God, it impacts the way that we live. If I say I love my wife, but I pay no attention to her, and I'm abusive to her, and I'm not kind to her, I could say as much as I want that I love my wife, but you would look at my life and you would say, I don't think you actually love your, lo love your wife. And it would be true, because we can say things and not live them, and we know what is true, not by only what we say, but how we live. And this is why James talked about that, that faith without works is dead. That it's not just about confessing something intellectually, it's about living something that you believe in. That's what the word faith means, to trust, to act. Now Jesus says in John 6, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Don't call me Lord if you're not going to do what I say. In Matthew 7... 
Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. This, this statement of Jesus haunts me all the time. You know, because we look at someone who is prophesying, who is dri- driving out demons, who is performing miracles, helping the blind to see, the lame to walk, and we would be like, man, this guy must be so in tune with God. And, and Jesus is telling us here, even if people do that, they can still do these things and not submit to me as Lord. I think often we want, you know, a king as much as we, uh, we, we want our king to be like Queen Elizabeth. Can I say that? We treat Jesus like we treat Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth is referred to as sovereign, yet she has actually no functional rule in our very lives, right? Doesn't make any impact on how I live. Jesus is not Queen Elizabeth. He's actually king. And uh, I came across a story a few years ago, and I I find it fascinating uh, that uh, I want to talk about Mike the Headless Chicken. Okay, Uh, that was a... That was a tough transition. But Mike the Headless Chicken. (laughs) Stick with me here. So Mike, who was a headless chicken, lived for 18 years. Or 18 months. Sorry, not 18 years. 18 months. (laughs) Uh, And so uh, he lived for 18 months after his head had been cut off. Uh, After the loss of his head, Mike achieved national fame until he died in 1947 in Colorado. And in Colorado to this day, there is an annual Mike the Headless Chicken Day. Uh, It's held every May. Um, And so, uh, long story short, uh, on a farm, they were going to eat this chicken. And so uh, the parents told uh, uh, told their child uh, to go and, you know, cut up the chicken. And they cut off, went to cut off the head, but they failed to cut it off at the jugular vein and there was the brain stem that was still attached and so even though they didn't have the head, the chicken still functioned. And so the chickens could still walk around. Uh, they started feeding the chicken uh, through droplets and keeping it, uh, keeping it alive and then they started to tour around with this chicken, uh, the Olson family in Colorado, uh, as a spectacle and people would come and see Mike the Headless Chicken. Uh, and so this was actually a thing, uh, which is phenomenal. Uh, but I think when we, when we think about the church, <laughs> like I said, stay with me. When we think about the church, Scripture over and over again tells us that the church is the body of Christ and Jesus is the head. And many of us, and I'll include myself in this, Uh, live as if we don't have a head. We live as if we don't have a head. And the head of the body is the place that that organizes, that coordinates, that directs, that dictates what the entire body does. That's why we, we refer to Jesus as the head of the church, the head of his body. But I think we have this pandemic that is happening, not COVID, but a pandemic uh, that is just content to thinking about Jesus as our friend, Jesus as our forgiver, Jesus as our savior, and all these things are very, very true, but they're only true because Jesus is our Lord, because Jesus is king, because Jesus is our head, because he's in charge. Actually, in Ephesians, it says, 
That power is the same power as the mighty strength he exerted, speaking of God, when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present of this age, but also in the one to come. And God placed which things? All things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Jesus is master. Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. He still reigns because of his resurrection. The early church, for the first 300 years of its existence, grew rapidly. It experienced rapid growth and expansion. This rapid growth happened despite no real strategy on evangelism, about telling people about Jesus, about that there wasn't really a strategy around this. The church's primary witness in the early church was a product not of what Christians said, but of how Christians lived. The rapid growth happened even though it was under much persecution, even though Christians were being martyred for their faith. They were giving their very lives for this belief that Jesus was resurrected and he was Lord. The way that they lived actually communicated the good news of the gospel. They would have, and, and, I'm, uh, and you can actually read about this, they, they, there were times where they would not allow people to participate in their worship gatherings until they had been discipled and met with for three years. Can you imagine? You come to SunWest one morning, and we say, you know, get in line, you got a three-year road. How many of us would last three years before we got to participate in the worship together? Now, why did they do this? Um, they did this because they believed that the testimony of who Jesus said he was was not to be found just in the words that we speak, but in the way that we live. And if you were going to call yourself a Christian, if you were going to follow Jesus, uh, you needed to actually show that you had the desire, the capacity, and the willpower to live like Christ. And so they would meet with people that were interested in following Jesus. They would meet with them. They would meet with them. And they, they would learn to live life together, learn the habits of Jesus, learn the way that Jesus lived. And when, when people actually demonstrated that they were willing to follow Jesus, then they actually became part of the church. Now, I'm not advocating for a three-year uh, process of discovering Son West to join Covenant Community. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, but I think it's, it's fascinating to think about how seriously they took obedience to Christ. How seriously they took Jesus as Lord. And you might say, well, what happened? Well, 300 years later, there was a guy named Constantine. I don't know if you know about him. Uh, but anyways, he, he, he was emperor of Rome, and he made uh, Christianity the official uh, religion of Rome. Uh, and... This was great news for Christians because they would no longer be persecuted. They would no longer be martyred because, hey, we're accepted by the state. Rome loves us now, and we can get on with our Christian lives without any hardship. But the problem was this came at an exchange. The problem was Constantine did not want Jesus as king because he was king. Constantine wanted Jesus as forgiver, Jesus as friend, but he didn't want Jesus as king. And so he led a life that looked nothing like Christ. And he allowed anybody, because all, all citizens of Rome at that time would inherently become Christian because of their citizenship and how they lived no, ma no, matter long, no, no longer mattered. So the Christians struck a deal. 
we'll kind of lay low on this kingship thing of Jesus, uh, and in exchange, we won't get persecuted. But we've been paying for that. We've been paying for that. And so I think the invitation to receive the good news of Jesus uh, is an invitation that Constantine wasn't willing to respond to, which was to take ourselves off the throne, not to be Lord of our own lives, not to be king, not to just do things because I like it or because I feel like it, not to not do things because I don't like it. Jesus says, if I'm Lord, then that changes everything. And you actually become the best version of yourself when you submit to my lordship. Uh, But don't be mistaken, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father, as it says in Philippians 2. So I want to invite you to stand. And you're like, this obedience thing, this seems like heavy. You know, it's not that heavy. Um, It's actually just an orientation of the heart. Uh, That true freedom is actually found in submission. And slavery is also found in submission. And you will choose what you become slave to, and we all become slave to something. And Jesus says that his yoke is easy, his burden is light. And the only way we become truly who we were created to be is when Jesus takes his rightful place as Lord of our lives. And so I want you to reflect. When is the last time you changed your mind or your opinion because Jesus was Lord? When was the last time you changed your course, which, by the way, is the biblical word repentance? When you changed direction, we live in a time when everybody's so sure of everything they think, and I see very little repentance and humility. The mark of a follower of Jesus who claims that Jesus is Lord is that they are humble. If God always agrees with you, there's a good chance that you are not following God, that you're your own God. I've had to pay attention to this in my own life. Is like I recognize how much God agrees with me. I'm like, that probably isn't right. If Jesus is Lord, it has implications on our finances, on our generosity, it has implications on our values, on our goals, it has implications on our sexuality, it has implications for how we treat the most vulnerable, children, widows, elderly, the poor, it has implications for how we participate in politics and the world around us, it has implications on how we think about violence and war. If Jesus is Lord, it actually changes everything, which means that there's going to be times when we have to change our mind and change our direction and be humble because we are not Lord, Jesus is. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are Lord. And even though as human beings, we have struggled from the beginning of time not to put ourselves on the throne. But Lord, we know that when we put ourselves on the throne, it's to our own detriment. It's to our own detriment. We thank you that you created us to be connected to you, to abide in you, and out of that relationship in you is true life. We thank you that when you become Lord, we become truly alive. Lord, I pray that you would uh, address the lies that many of us believe that when you become Lord, that we become less. That is not true at all. We thank you that you are Lord, and because of that, that you forgive, that you save, that you befriend, that you invite us into a lifelong, authentic relationship with you. We thank you because of your resurrection that it changes the way that we see and experience everything. Lord, will we live like we actually believe in the resurrection, that we actually believe that you are Lord? May we be reminded of that in this day 
when there's so many things that are wanting to create fear in our lives and worry in our lives. Lord, may we depend and trust in your lordship. Lord, I pray for those in this room that have never, or that are joining us online, that have never actually bent their knee and confessed that you are Lord and believed in their heart that you were raised from the dead, that you would woo them by your Holy Spirit right now. We know, Lord, that it is not shame or guilt that leads us to repentance, but it is your kindness, as it says in Romans. So may we see your kindness demonstrated on the cross and in your resurrection. May that melt our hearts and our pride. May we humbly come and accept you as you are, as Lord. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.